Well, thank you. Thanks for a great introduction, and uh, it really is good to be with you. I'd love you to open your Bibles to Acts 13. If you have a Bible with you, that would be great. And uh, I want to talk really practically this morning uh, about some of the practicalities of mission. And uh, I want to just go through Acts 13 and uh, look at it together, see what it has to say to us about some of the kind of things to look out for as churches get on mission together, as God's people get on mission together. And obviously we know that Jesus said, you know, that we are to go. We're to go to the ends of the world with the good news about him. And uh, going, that kind of momentum is what being in the family of God is all about. That's what we're supposed to be doing together. So when Paul uh, is looking at a Roman soldier and he begins to talk about the armor of God, when it gets to the boots, when it gets to the, the kind of the feet of the soldier, he says, and our feet are wearing, if you like, the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's what they're wearing. Their boots are the gospel because we're going to walk it out. We're going to go and uh, we're going to take the gospel everywhere we go. And I love being here with you. I love hearing the stories about going. And uh, right the way from the beginning of this morning, the stories that have come up on the screen, even the words that the Holy Spirit has prompted through the meeting have been about trusting that God will be with us when we go, that he's going to be with us. This is unlikely to happen for me, but in the nail bar, uh, it's, uh, you know, God's going to be there when you're having your manicure and uh, having your polish redone. And he's going to be with you in the difficult meeting. He's going to be with you in the workplace. He's going to be with you on your commute to work. God's with you all the time. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? It's that kind of going momentum that I want to speak into. Now, when churches begin to really get going, when they really do begin to gain momentum, and Church Central is a church like that. I mean, if this meeting, if this one meeting demonstrates anything... It demonstrates that you guys are going for God, that you're multiplying. Got to three sites, praise God. You're going. There's momentum and traction. You've got to thank God for that. Because when God's people get going, there are come some kind of unique pressures that come to them, which we're going to read about in Acts 13. And to be honest, when churches don't get going, when they're not really gaining momentum the pressures we're going to talk about this morning don't exist the pressures we're going to talk about this morning uniquely affect God's people when they do go and they trust that God's going to be with them so you guys you're under a great mission God's called you to really influence this massive city you got to three sites I'm confident that you're going to get involved with more There's multiple teams, lots of people doing lots of work, and with multiple teams and multiple sites come multiple pressures. And I want to speak right into some of those pressures this morning. Now, in Acts chapter 13, we're going to start at verse 13, and for the sake of time, we're going to kind of flip through some of the verses together, but we're going to get the feel of what is being told, the story that's being unfolded in Acts 13. Starting at verse 13. It says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And from Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue 
and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue ruler sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And he begins to tell about Christ. Now verse 27. It says, The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our forefathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it was written in the second Psalms. Verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively about what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it, And do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Let's pray and then we're going to look at those verses together father we do want to thank you for the joy of being together father we thank you that we are one church we thank you for your universal church this worldwide family of sons and daughters we want to thank you that we can come to you with complete confidence that we're received and accepted thank you that we know the unconditional love of god through christ So we welcome you right now, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, we welcome you. We ask you to be our teacher here this morning, right in this cinema. We say, Holy Spirit, let your friendship and your ministry be evident. We pray for it. We open ourselves to you. We say you are our teacher. We're looking for you to apply the things of God to our spirits and to shape us through them. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the massively commending things about the Bible is that it really is telling the story of the early church as we look through the Acts of the Apostles. It's telling the story warts 
and all. If it was a fabrication, it would only surely give high points and none of the challenges. But it is written to help us and to educate us, to teach us how to work through hardship as well as success. So as we read through the Bible, we find some of the warts appearing as people face challenges as they really gain momentum for the gospel. And the first thing I want to talk about is when God's people really get going, when they really do have momentum and they're beginning to multiply and expand and they're on mission together, they're obeying Jesus and going, one of the first things that we see often is there is a pressure on teams and relationships. And I want to just touch on this just for a few minutes and then we'll work through a number of other points as well. Right at the first verse that we read together this morning, verse 13, it says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. That's interesting. That's like a tiny little phrase in Acts 13. John left them to return to Jerusalem, seemingly kind of an irrelevant detail. But we know it became very important to Paul. And to Barnabas. When we get to Acts 15, there is a dispute between Paul and Barnabas relating to this very moment where John Mark deserted them, as Paul later says in Acts 15. It becomes such a hot topic that when they talk about it together, Paul refuses to take John Mark with him because he had let them down before he's deserted us. So this seemingly little insignificant phrase in Acts 13 becomes bigger as the mission goes on. And why did John Mark desert Barnabas and Paul? Why did that happen? John Stott, a well-known Bible commentator, he suggests five reasons why John might have. Any of them might be right, none of them might be right. Firstly, was he homesick? We know he had a mother with a large home and influential family in Jerusalem with servants, etc. Maybe he simply got homesick. Secondly, did he resent Paul's obvious promotion to being team leader? Was there a chemistry clash between John and Paul? Thirdly, did he disagree with Paul's theology on gospel to the Gentiles? Here's Paul as a Jew saying, come on, we're going to move on as we read just a minute ago. If you're going to decline the invitation, Jews, to accept your Messiah, that's fine. We're going to press on and keep offering Christ to the Gentile world. Maybe fourthly, he didn't relish the prospect of the climb over the Taurus Mountains, and he genuinely, with timidity, feared for his own life because of the journey that was ahead of them. It looked too rigorous and risky. And maybe lastly, John Stott suggests, maybe Paul was sick already, We know that Paul by this time was already battling with his illness. It says in Galatians 4.13, it was because of an illness that he first preached to them. Maybe Paul was already showing signs of sickness and John was concerned about that illness to the point where he didn't feel it was responsible to continue. We'll never know what actually happened. But what we do know is this little team together, this little cluster of Christians underway for the gospel had a moment of dispute. Because when the church really gets motoring, relationships can come under pressure. We may well already know that. Some of the reasons why relationships come under pressure. There's constant change and need for adjustment. I said just a minute ago, 
You know, these are unique to churches that are really pressing on and going for God. Because if there is no change and no need for adjustment, relationships can stay pretty static and safe. But in church life, where we're not settling for the status quo, we're saying we're believing for more. The gospel promises us more. We're not going to stop with two sites. We're not going to stop with three sites. As God gives us grace for it, we want to affect more and more of Birmingham, for example. There is going to be pressure at times on relationships and friendships because of change and adjustment. Maybe travel. Maybe that was one of the influences here on this little moment of conflict. Maybe there's a spiritual battle element right in the middle of it as well. Maybe it's just too much time together. I'm sure people find that the case with me. You know, I've got my friend Matt with me today. He may never accept another invitation to be stuck in a car for three hours in one day with me. And I wouldn't blame him if he didn't. But you know, just having time constantly with the same people, there can become a rub. Where we have to think, hang on a minute. Mission can put pressure on relationships. A few years ago, it happened that um, Valentine's Day fell on a Sunday. I think it was 2009 or 2010. And uh, we said, come on, let's make something of Valentine's Day on our Sunday. So we did a whole Sunday morning and we called it Trust Me. And we wanted to do like a gospel morning, uh, really communicating the invitation of Christ to whoever came. And it was themed around the, uh, the uh, kind of the, the, the moment of uh, Valentine's Day. And we put a lot of effort into it. When I arrived at the venue... 30 minutes before the meeting was due to arrive, our setup guys had been there like for two hours laboring and we had walked into complete chaos in our rented venue. They had had another event there the night before, hadn't told us that it was going to happen. There were all sorts of stages and things in place which meant we couldn't have our normal format. I arrived completely shocked. We put so much effort into this morning. And the guy leading our setup team that came uh, that morning came up to me and he said, Matt, he said, I'm really sorry. It's the best we can do with the way we found the venue this morning. It's a real shame. My response to him was, it's not a shame. It's a shambles. And uh, I was meaning the venue, the situation. You know, I was like, I was angry with myself. Why didn't I check? So much is riding on this morning. Why didn't I phone the school and check nothing was happening? So I'm frustrated deeply with myself and with the situation. And I said, it's not a shame. It's a shambles. Matt, why didn't I think of this? That's what I should have said, but I didn't. That bit was inside. Anyway, months later, the guy that I'd had that interaction with, said, can I come and see you? I said, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, come on. So we had coffee together. He came into my office and he said, can I just speak about something that's been with me for a few months really hurt me? As he said that, he burst into tears. I thought, what's happened? Who's upset him? Hmm? Some some insensitive person has really done something here because this guy, he's pretty level And, you know, it's going to take a lot to upset this guy. Then he said, Matt, it was on that Valentine's morning when you said, it's not a shame, 
This is shambles. And I've just felt so heavy about it. I feel like I let you down. I feel hurt by what you said. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. You're not a shambles. The team wasn't a shambles. The, the situation was. My lack of foresight was. But this dear brother had been carrying it. You know, when you really go for things, it can put pressure on relationships. We need to be careful that we keep that in mind as we keep pressing forward, as we keep going for things. I want to commend a guy in our church. is a guy called Andy Hoffman. And uh, he's kind of immortalized as one of the quiet, hidden heroes in Emmanuel. He's an amazing guy. He heads up our invisible, to most people, kind of set-up team ministry. So we're in this rented venue that I've just described that often throws challenges our way. And uh, this guy, Andy Hoffman, has taken on our five setup teams. And I have never seen a person work with more grace than this guy. You know, he is phenomenal. I've just been, we invited him to take on this ministry. He has been phenomenal. He phones the team up the night before on a Saturday night every week. Says, is everything set for tomorrow? Is there any way I can help you for tomorrow? Is everything in order? All of your team, have you phoned them? Are they ready? Every Sunday afternoon, apparently, he phones all of the setup guys. So just want to say thank you for what you did this morning. You did a great job. The venue was fantastic. He is an amazing example of how to live when relationships could be under massive pressure. So we need to just bear that one in mind. Now, I want to say also, before we move on from this point of pressure on relationships when churches really do have traction... And you might be here this morning thinking, to be honest, I feel like my, I'm under a bit of pressure. You know, with the multiplication of sites and the vision that we've got, I'm feeling a little bit weary or I feel like I've got too much on, the expectations are too high. There are some fantastic tools given to us within the Christian faith to help us handle pressure and avoid conflict. By the grace of God, they exist. I want to give you two. One is flexibility. Flexibility is a beautiful Christian trait. It's a beautiful Christian trait to say, do you know what? Yes, I can. Do you know what? I can help. Yeah, I can move things around. It's not end of the world. It doesn't matter. I can move things. It's fine. Flexibility is a beautiful Christian trait. And the other is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a very powerful tool, isn't it? I've got a seven-year-old daughter and a 17-year-old daughter. My seven-year-old daughter, just recently, I had such a valuable exchange with her. She, we had a moment where it was appropriate for her to apologize for something. And she's nearly eight. And she just couldn't quite bring herself to apologize. You know that feeling? Where you kind of, you've passed the point of no return where you know you've got to. But you're not quite at the moment where you've got the grace to do it. And she felt so dreadful. And she was tearful and nothing was going to move on in her life. Until this moment had come thoroughly and... You know, voluntarily. So she's just sitting it out, trying to find grace to apologize. And she said to me, Dad, it kind of hurts. And I said, I know. She said, it's a feeling in here. It kind of hurts. I said, there's a medicine for that. And I said, when you don't feel very well, Mommy and Daddy give you cowpaw, don't we? And it helps you. There's medicine for that hurt that you're describing. She said, what is it? I said, it's saying sorry. It's forgiveness. 
It's offering forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. I said it's like a medicine that takes that horrible feeling away. And at that point she went and apologised and the point, I hope, is registered in her mind. So even since that moment, we've said, come on, what's the medicine for that? I need to say sorry. You do. So flexibility and forgiveness. Those two things, church life, will rarely go wrong. Church life goes wrong where we get inflexible and we don't choose to forgive. Now, moving on. So one is, keep your eyes out for pressure on relationships and friendships when churches really get motoring. The second one is connect with your strongest links first. Being practical about mission. Note Paul's strategy for mission in his context. It says in verse 14 and 15, On the Sabbath... They entered the synagogue and sat down. Now it's interesting. You may think, well, of course they did. They're first century Jews. Why wouldn't they go to the synagogue and begin to teach about the Jewish Messiah and say, I think you've missed Jesus Christ. He's been, he's died, been raised from the dead. It's time that you accepted your Messiah. But there is a point there because Paul particularly is eager anyway to get underway and get connected with the Gentile world but he still makes sure that he connects with his easiest contacts first. Now, in terms of practicality for mission, I think that is a fantastic model for us to adopt. It's amazing, when we start thinking about mission, you know, we used to talk a lot about evangelism, and the word mission has kind of replaced that terminology in our churches more and more. But when we think about personal evangelism, we often think about groups that we don't often connect with. I mean, historically, that's been slightly weird in the church, don't you think? You think we will have an evangelistic week. I was brought up in a brethren assembly, and we would have evangelistic weeks or months. And the county's evangelist would come, who were usually very good men. They would come, county's evangelist, and you'd have a kind of intense period of mission where you do door-to-door visitation. I can remember as a seven or eight-year-old, be like Jehovah's Witnesses, going around with my dad, going to front doors. No, they don't want to hear either. Another front door. No, they don't want to hear either. And I'm not in any way down on door-to-door evangelism, but it is a strange strategy, don't you think? When you live naturally with people all the time. All of us are connected every day with people who actually you could go and sit with. Like Paul, you go to the synagogue and sit down. Second home. It feels natural to you. So Paul's strategy was to start there. And if if we're going to be really practical about mission, we've got to understand that that is a great place for us to start too. That we... That we... um, We want to be those that are connected to our most easiest groups first. So now think about the easiest groups for you to connect with. We heard about some of them this morning from people who are giving testimonies. So just turn to the people with you and say, my easiest group would be. Just turn to the people next to you and just tell them who your easiest group, in terms of those that you're going to communicate Jesus to. My easiest group would be. Go on, just turn to the people around you. Go on, say, just my easiest group would be. Make some noise. Now, I guess for most of you, The names that you've just given and the groups you've just described are the people that you spend most of your time with. 
the people you're working with, studying with, living with, neighbours. You know, it makes sense, doesn't it? Just start with your easiest connections first. Now, the challenge with that is you can't do the one-hit wonder evangelism. You can't napalm somebody with the gospel and then disappear without any consequences. You can if you're just knocking their door once in every four years. But if you're living with them, it's got to be a different kind of message. First of all, it's got to kind of tie up with how you live every day. It's got to be consistent with what you're saying and doing other times when they're with you. But there's a challenge there for us. We need to start our mission where we connect most regularly. So where do you shop most regularly? Most of us fill up with fuel in the same fuel stations, have our hair cut in the same barbers. We tend to go to the same kind of, you know, Tesco's or whatever. There are opportunities there all the time for us to build rapport, to get to know people. You know, the guy, there's a fuel station near our house. Wendy and I decided when we moved to Oxford for the first few years, we're going we're gonna to use that fuel station only simply to try and make connections with people who work there. We met a fantastic couple from India there, husband and wife. Both have master's degrees. They're both working double shifts in a total fuel station to try and live in Oxford. And now we are connected with their life. This dear couple are trying to have a baby. We call in, we call in now to the fuel station even when we don't need fuel. Because we see that he's behind a till. We just want to have an update. Just assure him that we're praying for them. They're just going through their second batch of IVF. This dear couple working in the total fuel station. Why can't we do that? You know, in the UK, there's this phenomenon, I've told you about it before, called name badges. You know, I love this so much because because we're British, nobody ever uses them. So everybody wears them, nobody uses them. Use them. It is a riot. So when you get to the checkout, say, Hi, June, how are you? (laughs) Man with strange powers is at my till. And you can begin to connect with people by using their name. So practicalities of mission number two. Connect with your strongest links first. The benefit with that is you don't have to give everybody the whole gospel every time you're with them. You can just sprinkle something of the gospel into the conversation every time you have a conversation. Give it to them installments. Just begin to tell them the story bit by bit. Right, moving on, otherwise we're going to run out of time. Thirdly, be willing and able to tell the Bible story. Now, this is like zero to Jesus in five verses. Like verse 17 through to verse 23, Paul tells the kind of the history of Jesus for the Jews right up to the promise coming through Christ. He does it in five verses. He's got it off to a complete T. I mean, he can just communicate the gospel in five verses, five sentences. And he's communicated the prophetic promise, the fulfillment, and the invitation of Christ. That's an amazing gift, isn't it? Storytelling the gospel is an art we do well to learn. You know, it happens all the time that we're in conversations with people commercially, all the time, filling our cars up with fuel, as I've said, in Tesco's, whatever we're doing. And if we want to be really practical about our mission, we've got to learn how to drop Jesus into the conversation. How to do it brilliantly and subtly, just build it into any story. Like every conversation can lead to Christ. 
Anything we're touching on could, if we wanted it to, lead us that way. Now, I love telling stories. You know, I'm a bit of a storyteller. My brother sent me a postcard once, which he had found, and it was a a kind of a printed postcard. It said, Confession, I lie to make my stories funnier, and I just can't stop. And he said, Matt saw this and thought of you. And he put it in a post box. I love telling stories. You know, I just the more elaborate, the better. So I recognize for me, this might be easier within my personality mix than some of you, but all of us can do it in degree. You know, we've recently gone through the pain of having a rug in our lounge dry cleaned. Have any of you had that done lately? It's eight feet by five and a half feet, this rug. Okay, first dry cleaners I phoned up, they said 128 pounds to have it dry cleaned. I said, mate, I'm not asking you to make one. I want you to clean one. So anyway, and I kept phoning through the, you know, I've Googled all the dry cleaners in Oxford and I'm phoning them and they're all giving me ridiculous sums of money until I get to this one little independent dry cleaners in Botley in Oxford, I thought there's half a chance this guy might do it cheaply. So I take the um, rug to the guy, and he's a nice guy called Ken. And I'm chatting away to Ken. And I said to him, is there any way this could be done any cheaper? And he said, to be honest, it's really costly to make something clean. Now, how can a Christian not make something of that conversation? I said, you know what? That's what I I spend my work life trying to convince people of that message. So I said, you're on. You can clean it for that amount of money. Got it done for 50 quid worth shopping around. (laughs) So he said, so what do you do? Are you in the cleaning business? I said, no, I'm a church pastor. And I said, every Sunday we are telling people how much it costs to offer humanity forgiveness. To make people clean. And as you said, it costs a lot. It costs Jesus Christ his life to make people clean. And you just leave it there. Hoping that you've dropped enough of the gospel in. I mean, what time do we have to finish? Oh good, it's limitless. We're here till four. We've got 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I have got so many stories that I've used over the years, real life things that have happened to me that I've used for the gospel. Okay. On my honeymoon, we return to our home. We've had two nights. Okay. I, I meet young people today and they're getting married and they say, oh, we're going to have three weeks in the Seychelles. It's been great. We've been saving up for it. We didn't do that. We had two nights in Arundel. And then we got home to get on with our house, which needed a lot of work. And after our honeymoon, I drilled through the water main in our house. We only had one room that was painted. It was the kitchen. And uh, I said to Wendy, love, what would you like me to do? She said, could you put the tie backs up for the curtains? I said, love, watch this space. I held the curtains to one side and burst the water main that I didn't know was in the wall. Flooded our new home. And uh, I used that story so many times as an illustration for you never know what's under the surface. You never know what's under the surface. People always look normal until actually you dig around and then underneath there is often very deep water there that 
needs to come out. Where people do need forgiveness and healing. I've used that story so many times. Anyway, moving on. Number four. So number one, watch out for friendships. Number two, connect with your strongest links first. Number three, be willing and able to tell the Bible's story. Get used to it in your everyday life. Number four, anticipate rejection, persecution, and hardship. That's motivating, isn't it? But not from each other. All right? What happened here is that the Jews, Pharisees, became really hostile to Paul's message. In fact, in verse 45, it says, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively about Paul and his message. It's really ugly, isn't it? You know, they see the success of Paul. They see an interest in Paul's message that they can't muster with their own legalism. They would love desperately for the Jewish community to be that interested in their message. But nobody is ever interested in legalism. Paul comes speaking about the free gift of righteousness by Christ. And he's got a crowd. It's magnetic. And they're jealous and spiteful. They can't bear to see it. Can't bear to see a happy Christian living well. Well, good for them. All their friends coming around and having a great time. Looks like they're having a lovely time. Is it amazing how we can bump into spitefulness to the gospel and to the Christian life? Maybe in your workplace, you can find some hardship and rejection. I used to work for Volvo before working for the church. I worked for Volvo and we once went overseas for a trip, a kind of a corporate trip. And uh, it was a casino night. One night there was a casino night. I thought, oh man, this is going to be dull. And Wendy and I were sitting on a coach going from the hotel to the casino night, black tie event. Wendy and I are sitting in the front two seats of the coach. We wanted to get off as soon as we could when we got back. And uh, so we enjoyed the evening. It was fun as far as it went. Gala evening kind of thing. On the way back in two in the morning, everybody on the coach had had it seemed too much to drink. They began singing abusive songs about Christianity directed to me and Wendy. Amazing. I didn't even know they knew that I was a Christian. A 52-seater bus and 50 of the people are singing abusive songs about Jesus directed to us. One guy, one of the guys who was a steward and a host on the coach said, what do you want me to do? Would you like me to stop this? I said, no, don't stop it. It's pointless. They're all drunk. I said, I'm vaguely complimented that they know. It's fine. They knew I was a Christian. Praise God for that. You know, rejection will come. And we have to soak it up like Jesus did. We have to say, that's fine. It's not going to deter us. It's not going to put us off. It's one of the practicalities of mission. We're not going to be put off by it. If Jesus could face it down, all of the physical punishment, all of the dishonor and the disgrace, being punched and spat on, I can be sung out on a coach. What difference does it make to me, really? None. So we're going to handle rejection and persecution well. Finally, don't get sentimental. 
Be prepared to read the signs and move on. It's amazing. Paul can say in verse 46, We had to speak the word of God to you first, you stubborn, legalistic Jews. But since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, beautiful oration, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us to do. It's amazing that Paul has got the courage and the tenacity to say, that's fine. If you don't feel worthy of the invitation of the gospel, that's fine. We'll just go and invite other people. That's a beautiful attitude for us to have in our mission too. You know, don't kind of zone in on people that are repelling you all the time, who are aggressive and assertive. Don't kind of get into kind of spiritual self-harming, thinking I must keep witnessing to them. They hate me and they've been really spiteful about the gospel. It's fine. Just go and invite somebody else. That's all right. Don't get sentimental about it. You're not letting God down. You're not letting yourself down. They've considered themselves not worthy of the invitation you're making. So move on. It's fine. Don't get sentimental about it. So let me encourage you. In your bid as a church, as you continue to gain momentum, God's with you. I mean, this is not going to stop. You know that, don't you? And I feel God's given you wisdom on a way of multiplying church life across a city limitlessly. Who's to say that it's going to stop at four sites or five sites? Maybe in 10 years' time there will be 10 sites. Who knows what God's going to do? And what will give real traction to that is every one of you gaining confidence with the mission. Strategy and infrastructure just makes way for people. It doesn't make people. People are going to be one to Jesus by you and me living out our mission. We're going to be the ones who are going to protect our friendships and we're going to stay credible and viable. We're the ones who are going to learn to tell the story. We're the ones who are going to make the most of our strongest links first. We're going to deal with rejection and hardship and we're not going to get sentimental. And if you weave those five things together, you become incredibly robust and effective in advancing the kingdom of God in Birmingham. The opposites of those things are why largely churches historically in the UK have stagnated and not grown. Churches often have split, become places of spiritual heat, political kind of heat and breakdown historically over the years. We're not going to do that because we're going to protect our friendships and relationships. We're going to be flexible and show forgiveness. So that one's not an issue. Secondly, we have evangelism bursts doing door-to-door, but we don't actually bother to build gospel relationships with the people we're with. We're not going to do that either. Let me encourage you to make the most of every group you're a part of. It's interesting. I play golf. I have a day off on a Monday. I tend to play golf on a Monday morning. And in our roll-up group of kind of golfers, there are unbelievers in that group. And we don't kind of preach the gospel to them every morning. We're together, kind of from beginning to end. This is creation. 
We just, every time, we try and sprinkle a little bit of the gospel message. I recently had a conversation with one of the members of that group. He said, this is the best group I've ever been a part of. He said, I've been playing golf for 44 years. This is the best group I've ever played with. Because of the kind of characters that are on display, I guess. And don't get sentimental. Amen? God's with you. Let's pray. We're going to pray for God to continue providing grace and success and favour on all you're doing here at Church Central. Is that okay? Okay. Why don't we stand together for a minute? That would be great.